So stage fright uh, is perhaps one of the most frequently uh, cited phobias that people have. It's very closely associated with the glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. In fact, according to a uh, 2014 uh, Washington Post poll, uh, the fear of public speaking was the number one phobia that was ranked on that list. Uh, Some studies show that nearly three-quarters of the population suffer from some sort of fear of public speaking. And and I believe that. I can believe that. Uh, I think it's true that most people do have at least some trepidation in getting up and speaking publicly. Even in front of a small crowd, um, the act of being vulnerable in front of people can cause great anxiety. And for each person, those reasons uh, for that anxiety can vary. There might be a fear uh, that they're going to forget what they're going to say in the middle of their speech, or they might say something that they perceive is going to make them sound unintelligent, or whatever it may be. For each person, those things are going to be different. Now, some of you uh, here may even remember my first sermon, the very first sermon that I did. And uh, that would have been just over two years ago, uh, this coming past May. Um, Now... Some of you even recently have come up and uh, you've, you've told me that you've seen growth in me. And I do appreciate that. I thank you for that. Uh, but honestly, um, I do not take credit for that. Um, it has been and will continue to be only by God's mercy and grace that I've been able to come up here. It's by the wonderful mercy of God that I don't just pass out walking up those stairs. And believe me, that almost happened. The, the very first time uh, that I came up here to preach when I, Ryan was introducing me, uh, that would have been a story, let me tell you. Uh, but by God's grace, uh, he sustained me and has allowed me to continue. Now, one of the reasons I think it appears to be easier um, is because as the Lord gives me strength, again, I give him the credit for this, um, I've pursued God in prayer uh, to give myself over to him. Um, As I go through that anxiety and continually cast myself on him and experience his grace carrying me, my confidence in him grows Uh, because ultimately I must give that entirely over to him. I must repeatedly tell myself that this is all happening by his sovereign hand. Okay, he has placed me in this situation and has guided me here by his wisdom and he is moving me forward in this direction for his glory. I have to to believe that in order to get the gumption to even come up here. And he's going to allow me to do what he has purposed me to do for his glory. Now, this just isn't the case for public speaking and anxiety. Uh, This experience of moving from suffering of any kind, really, whether it's fear or sadness or depression or dealing with a tragedy or frustration to the the Lord shepherding us through that suffering, It gives us the confidence in him, which produces a thankful heart and leads us to exalt him in praise. This is the design that God in his infinite wisdom has chosen for us in order to glorify him. As we experience the suffering, and that is assured because of the reality of the cursed world that we live in, as his chosen people, he leads us to Christ, the suffering servant, to put our confidence in him. Okay, And when that thankfulness, and when that happens, it produces a thankfulness in our heart that the great mercies that he's given us in Christ lift him up in praise. Now, this is the macro movement of the believer's life. This is the direction that we are moving when we follow him in our Christian walk. 
Now, this movement through the seasons of, of, the, of life of the God's people experience and suffering is testified to all throughout the Bible. After all, the whole Bible is about God's glorification through the redemption of his people. And they are redeemed and delivered from suffering. We see this in the history of Israel. We see them suffering under bondage and then being delivered by God, growing them in their faith and giving praise to God. We see it in the life of David, the king. And we have to remember that much of David's life was saturated in affliction. Especially the early years, even after Samuel had anointed him as king, he spent a great amount of his life running for his life. We see it in the testimony of the apostles and the New Testament writers, but most importantly, we see this in the life of Christ. This movement mirrors the life of Christ as he is moved, as he is moved from suffering to glory. And this is communicated so often throughout the Bible because God is showing us what to expect in our lives as believers in Christ. And not just what to expect, but how to understand its meaning. And how to express ourselves during the various spiritual seasons of our lives. And one of the best books in the Bible that is specifically designed for this purpose is the book of Psalms. It's in the Psalms that we see this movement of life from suffering to glory through an emotional lens. Now, as creatures made by God, we are made to worship him. We are made to worship him in a multitude of ways. We worship him in declaring the gospel. Uh, when we witness to others, when we teach our children, when we preach him from the pulpit. We worship him by exercising faith in Christ, having Christ and Christ alone being our only hope. We worship him by the skills that he has gifted us with. And these include spiritual gifts as well as the gifts that he has given us to do our jobs. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But we also worship God in a powerful way by means of expression. And what I mean by that is our emotional outpouring in prayer and song. The book of Psalms is used as a guide for us to develop the correct biblical ways to express ourselves to God, especially in suffering. After all, most of the Psalms were written either during a time of, of affliction or after experiencing God's grace from being delivered from it. Now, last week, I began to introduce us to what is going to be the focus of our Sundays in the next couple months, the Summer of Psalms. And like I mentioned last week, our head pastor, Ryan, and his family are out in sabbatical. Uh, So we're going to be taking a break from our regular study in the book of Galatians, and we're going to embark on a journey through the book of Psalms. And so over the next couple months, we are going to be having uh, various guest speakers come in. I will be preaching as well. Uh, but they will be coming in to share with us their favorite psalm. And they'll be taking us through a psalm that had a special, significant, personal impact in their life during their Christian walk. Now to start this morning, I want to give a quick reminder about the nature of the book of Psalms in its form. Uh, The Psalms are a summary of the entire Bible. Uh, The grand message of the Bible is a story of redemption. And so is the book of Psalms. It is a testimony of God's deliverance of his people as their shepherd and king that ultimately points us to the shepherd king, Jesus Christ. But it's written in a unique way. The Psalms were written as Hebrew poetry. 
And since it was written as poetry, it's able to communicate the emotional nature of the prayers and songs of affliction, thanksgiving, and praise to God. The Psalms are God's people responding to him, which are then used to instruct us in how we ought to respond to God in prayer and worship during the various seasons of our spiritual life. Now, one of the ways that we identify with these uh, different seasons of the spiritual life in the book of Psalms is through the different genres that are found in the book. And if you remember from last week, understanding genre is important for two reasons. Uh, The first reason, as I just stated, is it gives us a window into understanding how we respond to God through the various seasons of our spiritual walk with Christ. And second, it's because it gives us a Christological window showing us a portrait of the life of Christ and how they point us to him as our sovereign king and redeemer. Now, last week we began uh, by looking at the first two psalms uh, that appear in the book, and we talked about how these two psalms, which have, may have originally been written as one complete psalm, uh, serve as the preface for the entire book. And we saw how Psalm 1 is a psalm of wisdom, and it's designed to grab our attention and instruct us in the way of righteousness. It shows us who the blessed man is. The blessed man is the one who looks into the word of God and meditates on it. And now Psalm number 2, which is a kingship psalm, fleshes that out a little bit more. It points us to God's anointed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it ends with the blessed man being one who finds refuge in him, in submission to him as our sovereign king. So the blessed man is he who looks into the word of God and rests in him, Jesus, as king of all creation. Now the remainder of our time last week was spent looking into the genre uh, that dominates the entire book, the lament, uh, the lamentation psalms. Um, Now, Lamentation Psalms were written during a time of anguish and suffering, a time of affliction. They were used to express the Israelites' cry for mercy and for comfort during times of distress and extreme affliction. And the laments are found throughout the entire book of Psalms. And this makes sense because the suffering of God's people that they experience happens throughout all generations and throughout all of our individual lives. The presence of lamentations throughout the book reflects that. But we do find that the book is front-loaded with lamentations, and this is by design, as it shows the entire arc of the book. shows us the direction that it is moving. So it begins heavily with lamentation and suffering that then moves steadily toward thanksgiving and praise. But remember, we don't just look at and define this genre and see them as mere complaints before the Lord. As if crying out uh, to the Lord simply means laying out a laundry list of annoyances and complaints. But we looked into the lamentation attempting to allow God's word to instruct us in how to properly properly express those cries. It consisted of praise as much as it did of pleas. It always holds deep inside us a believing heart in the goodness and sovereignty of of the Lord. It remembers his kindness in both the past and our confidence in him to deliver us in the future. But I do want us to keep something in mind. That future deliverance is secured in Christ in glory in all eternity. 
There's no guarantees and no promises that in this life uh, that we're going to be relieved of the physical sufferings or any suffering in this world. But the Psalms are pointing us constantly towards something. And it's not just an outlet that has no end. It's not merely a coping mechanism that helps us pass the time and entertain us. They are instructing us toward an end, an end that will be fully realized once we are with him in glory. The Psalms point us forward and teach us how to respond to suffering in a godly way that produces a thankful heart and results in praise to Christ our King. Now to begin this morning, I want to address a a variation of Psalm that is very closely related to the lament. Uh, But uh, these Lamentations have a distinctly different flavor. Uh, They reflect a a response to suffering in a way that, um, frankly, can make some Christians a little bit uncomfortable and not know how to enter into those things. So we can can start off by asking these questions. Uh, What do we do as New Testament Christians, what do we do with the imprecatory psalms? Now, the imprecatory psalms are those psalms that express cursing on the enemies of God and his his people. And they call on God to inflict punishment on them. So to refine this question a little bit, I'm going to ask the question this way. How do we enter into those and rightly express cursing on the enemies of God? Is there a place in our New Testament understanding of grace to even consider and use them? For example... Let me read part of this psalm. This is Psalm 5. Psalm 510, we read, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. That's a call to cast out. We're supposed to be pulling people into the kingdom. Now, there are some who say that the New Testament Christians as New Testament Christians, that these psalms of cursing of God is beyond the Christian ethic. That we're not, we're not to, to look at these and uh, assume that they have any place in the Christian ethic, but that they are from a time of Old Testament ethics. They make a distinction between Old Testament ethics and New Testament ethics. They say, well, that might have been the way that God's people were allowed to act before in Old Testament times. But now that Jesus came, we are called to love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use and abuse us. And they would cite passages like this in Matthew 5, uh, 38. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And again, also in, in verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And they read those passages and they say, see, this is showing us that Jesus is changing the ethic from Old Testament times to New Testament times. But this is a misunderstanding of what Jesus is teaching. Okay, Jesus is correcting those who were using an eye for an eye as a way of settling personal vendettas. They were taking justice upon themselves and they were using it as a means for them to take their own justice. They were taking justice in their own hands and not leaving it to the local governing authorities. And that is the way that the laws in the Old Testament times were given. 
So this was a distortion of the way that they were applying those laws. And Jesus was simply correcting them. The idea that the Old Testament and New Testament have two different sets of moral ethics is complete rubbish. In the very same gospel, in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, we read this. The Pharisees are coming, and they're, they're, they're wanting to test Jesus, so they say this. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now what Jesus was saying there when he was talking about the law and the prophets, he's talking about the entire scope of the Old Testament. That's how they communicated that. It wasn't just specific things in the law and the specific things in the prophets. He is saying the entire Old Testament testifies that this is the way that the ethic is. And so that ethic is the very same from Old Testament times to New Testament times. So arguing on the basis that there is a different ethic doesn't seem to hold up to scrutiny because that isn't what Jesus taught. Now another argument that might be okay is that it might be okay uh, only in spiritual matters with the devil. And that seems uh, pretty broad to me um, because we are constantly engaged in spiritual warfare. Uh, but consider the Apostle Paul. This is what the Paul, Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament the book of Galatians, the book that uh, Ryan's taken us to, this is Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. He says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, he repeats it. He says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word is anathema. That means damned to hell. Paul's using pretty strong language here. And this is the same apostle that wrote the great chapter of love. In the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 13. But listen to what Paul writes just a few chapters in 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 16.22. This is one of the last things that he writes in that letter. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Paul is expressing a desire for the Lord Jesus to come, and by extension, for that judgment to come on any who have rejected him. Now, Paul's curses here are an act of warning. So I think that in that context, that there is a, a place for this kind of sentiment. Now, in moving forward, there are a couple things that we need to consider. Uh, first, the cursing of God's enemies that's called upon uh, in these imprecatory psalms is not for light reasons. Uh, this isn't for any just trivial uh, offense. Uh, we aren't to pray imprecatory psalms on the neighbor who parks his car in front of our house or plays music too loudly at, at midnight or has a dog that barks all day uh, or even against those who do more serious offenses like steal from us or maybe they disparage our names. Okay, These curses that we see, they were bestowed against people who committed repeated and extremely grievous crimes against God and his people. They were written after God, they, they were written after God had shown patience with his enemies and had been repeatedly called to repent over it. But demonstrated a callous, unrepentant heart in the face of his patience and mercy. And in many cases, 
The point of the cursing was not just what they wanted God to do to their enemies, but it was an expression, a poetic expression that reflected the offenses that were being committed against them. These were simply calls for God to do justice. Now, I'd like for us to take a a look at a couple of examples of imprecatory psalms uh, this morning so that we can see how to enter into those in a godly way. Uh, So first, I would like uh, us to turn in your Bibles uh, to Psalm 35. Psalm 35. This is a a psalm where David is coming before the Lord and praying for deliverance uh, from enemies. And in verses... Uh, 4 through 8, we read this. This is Psalm 35. I'm going to start reading uh, verses 4 through 8. David writes, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, for the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me, Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he has hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Now, this is typical of imprecatory language. There's a desire to see the enemies driven away and expunged from the earth. The desire for punishment to come upon them. And at first glance, it may seem that this is David seeking after personal vengeance. But it's not. David is actually praying for deliverance from a false accusation. This is a prayer for God to deliver the innocent. And that God's justice would prevail. David is just using his personal experience to convey the broader application of justice being delivered to the innocent. Verse 7 states this clearly. Look with me at verse 7. It says, for without cause they hid their net for me. For without cause they dug a pit for my life. The destruction that David is praying would land on them is actually the destruction that they have brought upon themselves. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Now look at the second half of verse 8. And let that net, let the net that he has hid ensnare him, let him fall into it. The pits they dig for David's life become the pit they fall into according to their own evil. They have heaped the coals on top of their own heads. Praying for the traps that have been set by the wicked to befall those who who set them, I think ultimately is a prayer to protect the innocent. Shows a reverence for God's justice and his sovereignty since he, and not us, are the ones that would allow them to fall into it. In all imprecatory psalms, there is a reverence for God as sovereign. It is his justice that prevails, not our own. Let's look at another psalm. Turn over to Psalm 58. Sometimes the imprecatory language can be quite jarring and harsh. This is Psalm 58. Look with me down at verses 6 through 9. 
let this sink in. This is, this is pretty hard. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the, the heat of thorns with a green or a blaze, may he sweep them away. David isn't pulling any punches here with this one. The language is strong. But remember, this is Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry uses sim- symbolism and sometimes exuberant language to capture the emotional weight of what is being experienced in the psalm. Now, in this case, David is not wishing to see their teeth smashed in as if he's bloodthirsty and he's just you know, out to see some gore. Okay, the context of the psalm is against incredible tyranny. This is against the, the, the tyrannical rule of rulers and all over the world, actually. Look how verse 1 opens. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrong. Your, hand, your hands deal out violence on earth. This is about tyrannical leaders who try and place themselves in the place of God and have no understanding of justice. And David is praying not for their teeth to be broken, but that their grip on power would be broken. The teeth here are symbolic of their capacity to do violence and tear apart and consume the innocent. David is just saying it in such an amazingly poetic way that it really captures and grabs our attention as to the seriousness of the crime. And again, just like the Lamentations, the cries are always backed up with a reaffirming praise to God and a delight in his justice. Look with me down, verses 10 through 11. This is how David ends. He says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Now, even in our modern times, where there is an unprecedented number of people that are living in nations where there is justice for the common man, there are still millions that are living under cruel tyranny. And it's not wrong for us to pray to God that those who are ruling as tyrants and causing grave injustice would lose their power, that they would lose their grip. And the psalm helps us engage God in a prayer over those who are abusing the power that God has put into their hands to rule over the people. Remember, he is sovereign over all nations. He is the one who has put them in the power, and he will judge them the way that they abuse it. They fail to submit themselves to the throne of the sovereign king of all creation. It's not, a, it's not wrong to want them to have a desire to see them face justice. But that justice has to be in accordance with the Lord. We do it always with a heart that is leaving the final decision to the great king and judge of all nations. Now you might be wondering, how does looking into the imprecatory psalm help us understand the movement from suffering to thanksgiving to praise? Now before moving on, there's one last thing that I want us to consider. Uh, Whenever we are contemplating the imprecatory psalm, there must always be in our hearts 
even against the worst of God's enemies, a desire to see them repent. Consider Psalm 83. This is a Psalm of Asaph. Go ahead and and turn there now. Psalm 83. Asaph is contemplating the enemies of God's people and the Israelites are facing genocide. We see this in verse 4. Psalm 83, look at verse 4. It says, They say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. They're facing genocide, complete eradication. Then we get several verses listing their co-conspirators and the familiar calls for God to deliver them and punish the enemies of his people. But by the end of the psalm, we get a glimpse of something that's a reason for us to take note. Look down with me at verses 13. This is what Asaph writes. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As, cons- as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Pretty typical imprecatory language. Now look at what Asaph writes in verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Now, scholars are unclear as to whether or not this is an actual call for them to repent. But I think one thing is clear here. Asaph is absolutely concerned that seeking the Lord and knowing that he is king over the whole earth is what is most important. And verse 16 seems to indicate that he wants their faces to be filled with shame so that the result is is that they seek his name and know that he is God. Now, this could simply be Asaph expressing a desire for the Lord to have the final victory. Um, And when destruction has come upon them, they will have no choice but to be able to accept that he is God. Maybe that's the case here. Maybe it's a call to repentance. When I read it, it seems to speak that way. And I do know this, that there have been times where I've prayed that someone I cared about would finally hit that wall. To take that last fall, they would wake up and get to the end of themselves and finally see that faith in Christ is their only hope. To get them to see that it's futile to try to run away from him. That there's a deep satisfaction in life that can only be found in him. And sometimes I'm desperate for them to know it. And I pray that out of love for them and even a desire to see the Lord magnified, even if it means that they have to take a lump, even a serious one, so that they finally just get it. And what that desire is, is essentially is praying that some kind of suffering or sorrow would plague them. Not out of vengeance or cruelty, but ultimately out of love for their soul and a desire to see them repent and to turn to Jesus. This is no less than the exact sentiment Paul expresses in 1 Corinthians, or actually in 2 Corinthians, about the the terrifying letters that he sends them. Listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9. 
Paul writes this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. That rejoicing that Paul expresses here came from the Corinthians repenting after being grieved and being made sorrowful. Seeing someone grieve is a good thing if it's leading them to repentance. Paul says that this this is the kindness of the Lord. And when we're repenting, that means that we're experiencing godly sorrow. The Lord shepherds us through that, drawing us to Jesus and guiding us to experience his love and kindness and mercy and grace. The suffering and sorrow we experience in a repentant heart leads us to believing that Christ suffered and died for us. A death and suffering that we deserve, but God in his great compassion had mercy on us and spared us from it. And meditating on that and letting that truth overwhelms us and leads us to having a thankful heart. The Psalms point us forward and teach us how to respond to suffering in a godly way that produces a thankful heart and results in praise to Christ our King. Now, as I've stated a few times before, the the beginning of the Psalms, the the book of Psalms is front-loaded with lamentations. But as we progress through the book, as we move through there, we see the themes of thanksgiving and kingship and praise they begin to dominate. Now, sometimes it can be difficult uh, to discern exactly what the genre of a psalm is. Uh, For instance, uh, about seven or eight weeks ago, I took us through Psalm 63, and I didn't talk a whole lot about the genre of that psalm. And one of the reasons, uh, time was one of the reasons, but part of the reason uh, is because it's really hard to put that psalm into just one genre. And and some uh, might see that as a a psalm of lamentation with its longing and thirsting uh, and its pleas for deliverance. Uh, But There are also kingship aspects of it, and even there is an imprecatory section where there is a bestowing of cursing on God's enemies. And I think the Psalms intentionally have a mix of genres in them because we don't experience just one emotion at a time. Uh, We are often a mix of them, and we're experiencing a heart full of thanks and praise even while lamenting for those who do not know the Lord and are perishing. And this isn't a contradiction in purpose, this is simply how we are built. And the Psalms are a reflection of what's going on emotionally inside us as we respond to God. Now, with a Thanksgiving Psalm, uh, sometimes people aren't sure if it should be called a Thanksgiving Psalm or a praise Psalm. And one of the reasons is because often the word praise is included in the Thanksgiving Psalm. Uh, So the distinctiveness of a Thanksgiving Psalm is that it focuses on praise or thanks to God when something that was wrong has been set right. It's a response to being delivered out of trouble. It is the aftermath of that deliverance. The suffering was before, and now you are delivered, and it produces the thankful heart. Now, as an example, let's turn to Psalm 66. We're going to go back just a little bit into Psalm 66. And look with me at uh, Psalm 66, verses 8 through 12. Read along with me. This is uh, Psalm 66, starting in verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. 
who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as a silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men right over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. The praise stems from a thankful heart that remembers past burdens that the Lord had delivered them from. Now, you notice that the word thanks doesn't appear in this psalm. Um, But the word praise does. Um, That's because it's not necessarily defined by the words that it's using, but rather it focuses on the praise that stems out of being delivered from affliction. That's the definition of a thankful heart. And we see that here in verse 12. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. God doesn't just rescue us from drowning and guide our hand right over to the side of the boat. He lifts us completely out of the water and sets us in a place of abundance. A thankful heart considers and praises God for his abundant mercy. The psalm reminds me of what we read in 1 Peter. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 through 7. Hopefully this should sound familiar to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Now, though, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it, how we continue to see the same story arc all through the Bible. Affliction and suffering, strengthening into faith, leading to rejoicing and praise. Let's look over at Psalm 116. Psalm 116. I'm going to read the first four verses. This is Psalm 116, verses 1 through 4. I love the Lord. Because he has heard my voice in my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined, he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Again, the thankful heart rises from being delivered out of trouble. When we are drowning in life and the anxieties of problem after problem threaten to crush us, even as believers in Christ, even though we try to fight this, there's a panic that wants to settle into our hearts. And that panic can be life-draining, joy-stealing dark cloud that follows us around and suffocates our faith. And in those moments, it feels like you're about to go over a a thousand-foot waterfall and it's all about to end. Now, I'm not going to give you some sort of you're not trusting in the Lord enough or where's your faith admonishment. That's for another time. 
What I do want to do is encourage you with a reality that the psalms, like these psalms of thanksgiving, remind us that the Lord delivers his people. He hears our cries of suffering and he delivers us. The time of suffering is temporary and it's designed so that we might fully trust in him and believe that he is faithful and he is going to carry us and deliver us. And when we see that deliverance, it overflows into gracious, thankful heart and it says along with Psalm 116, verse 1, I love the Lord because he has, had, he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. God's faithfulness in delivering us is seen all throughout redemptive history. This is why we see the history of Israel recounted so many times in the Psalms. It's a reminder of where we've been and how God was faithful to deliver them time and time again. And we have to hold on to that. We have to remember about that thankfulness in our heart when the gospel first penetrated our minds and we believed in Christ Christ is the ultimate deliverance. He's the ultimate reason to give thanks. But we always have to remember, even as Christ suffered in this life, we too will suffer. But his suffering didn't last forever. His suffering meant something. It had a purpose. He suffered for our deliverance. But even greater, he suffered for the praise and glory of God. And praise to our God and King is what it is all about. Now, praise psalms are generally defined by exalting the works of God in redemptive history and praising his sovereignty as the Lord of all creation. For example, Psalm 145. Let's turn over to Psalm 145. This is Psalm 145, verses 10 through 13. We read, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all you saints shall bless you. All all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Now again, just like the praise psalm, we saw the word thanks in here. That doesn't necessarily define it. It's the praising God for his work throughout redemptive history, his creation, his sovereignty as king. Praise psalms are the cumulative glorifying of God for deeds that he's done in past history and in creation and for all of his glorious attributes. It's the cumulative outpouring of the heart and the ultimate expression of worship to God. Now, one of the ways that you can quickly identify a praise psalm is that it oftentimes begins with the phrase, praise the Lord. Claudia knows that. (laughs) Look over with me at uh, Psalm uh, 146. Psalm 146, verse 1. Begins like this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Everything that the psalmist is is praising God. The existence of his life is defined by praising and enjoying God. And even though they will at times, like here in Psalm 146, point out specific things, they are really exalting 
God in everything of who he is. They praise him for salvation. They praise him for his justice. They praise him for his provision and protection. They praise him for his compassion, for his sustaining of our lives. They praise him for setting us free in Jesus and delivering us from affliction and for his reign over all creation. They are the cumulative exaltation of the Lord in all of his works and in all of who he is. Last Psalm. Psalm 150. Look with me at Psalm 150. This is truly the grand summary of everything that the book of Psalms is communicating to us. It all boils down to this. This is Psalm 150. We're going to read the whole thing. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That very last statement in there is a summary of everything in this book. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now notice the repetition and the brevity of the psalm. It doesn't have to be long and drawn out or overly clever or wordy. Its simplicity and sharp focus on the subject is in, in giving God praise is actually part of its glorious design. Verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It is not a mistake or a half-stance that the back end of the book of Psalms ends in praise psalms. This is the direction, the movement from suffering to praise is the point of the entire book. It's called the book of praises. Even though numerically the lamentations are truly throughout the entire book, and they are front later in the book to show us the overall arc, numerically they're the most abundant genre in the entire book. So why isn't it called the book of afflictions? It's called the book of praise because that's the direction it's leading us to. Ultimately, it is all for his praise and his glory. It's to show us the direction that we are going. And it gives us that Christological emphasis on the redemption that begins with suffering and ends in praise. It shows us that our final destiny isn't languishing forever in hopelessness and suffering. But it shows us that our destiny is in Christ. It's one that's moving us from suffering to glory. The book of Psalms is a treasure of praise to our glorious God. The Psalms point us forward and teach us how to respond to, to suffering in a godly way that produces a thankful heart and results in praise to Christ our King. The Psalms are a reflection of the life of Christ and his disciples. And it acts as a guide for us to understand the meaning of our suffering in this life and points us to our final destination in him. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, 25, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He lived a life of suffering which was necessary to glorify God and enter into his glory. 
Only through his suffering would we be able to follow after him and have any hope of glory. And that hope is for all who come to him in faith and believe that he died for your sins and placed in place of your life and lived that righteous, perfect life that you couldn't. The Psalms give us a picture of redemption. They show us the necessity of receiving instruction from the Lord and meditating on his word. That he reigns on his throne in heaven and that Jesus Christ is the supreme ruler of the nations. He is the ultimate deliverer. The Psalms show us that the suffering we experience and that our cries of deliverance are heard by our gracious and loving and merciful God. He delights in answering our cries. He loves justice and righteousness and will not let suffering of the innocent go unpunished. They show us that he comforts his people in times of distress and produces in us a thankful heart when we take our satisfaction in him. They show us the simplistic yet profound ultimate meaning to all creation is to sing his praise. They show us that he is the great, mighty, sovereign king of all creation and that in the end, everything that has breath will praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, just like the psalm says, let everything that has breath praise you. Lord, it is our desire to see that, to finally live with you in glory, where every moment will be spent praising you and enjoying you forever. Lord, you are greatly to be praised for all your works throughout redemptive history, Lord, but especially for sending Jesus. All things were made through him and for him. We exalt him in this place in our hearts, Lord. Lord, I pray, if there are those here who do not know you, Lord, that you would be pleased by your sovereign grace to enter into their hearts, to expose that there is no hope in themselves, Lord, to give themselves over to you, that they would see that you are the only place to find true uh, satisfaction and peace. Lord, and we pray that your peace would be in the hearts of your people as well. That we would remember that there is a meaning in our suffering. Whatever it is that we are going through in life, Lord, that you are there guiding us, and it is working for your glory and our good. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you so much for this word. We thank you so much for the book of Psalms. We thank you so much for what they teach us. And we pray, Lord, that we would be in this summer of Psalms, throughout this summer, that we would be blessed by those that you bring in here into this pulpit, that they would be able to open up your word and those individual experiences that you give each and every one of us to give us encouragement in our faith, leading us to praise you with all of our being. We thank this in the name of Jesus. Amen.